You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got some ushers coming down the aisle. Just put your hand up, hold your hand up. They'd love to get you a copy of God's Word so you can follow along. This morning, really what we're going to do, instead of even just reading the passage all at one time, we're going to walk through this just a few verses at a time. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. While you're turning there, I want you just to think about a, a time in your life where, you know, you had expectations of something, you know, something that was coming, something that was going to happen. Um, Maybe it was, you know, a big tax return. Maybe you had an expectation of what you were going to use that money for. Maybe it was an upcoming summer vacation, you know, going through the year, being tired, being worn out, and the expectation of what that vacation will do to refresh you and how good that will be and how good that will feel. Or maybe it's expectations for, you know, children or maybe just general expectations for your life. I just want you to think about a time when, you know, when you had those expectations and it didn't exactly pan out the way that you figured it would. Uh, A time where, you know, you got that tax return and it wasn't all that you'd hoped it would be. It didn't do for you what you thought it would or you had that vacation that you longed for, that you waited for and you built up so much, but it didn't refresh you in the way that you were hoping or maybe even those expectations that you had put on one of your children to realize that they couldn't live up to that or that they were off base to begin with and I want you just to think about that, and I want you to think about, you know, the disappointment that can come when our expectations aren't met. We so often in this life have great expectations for things, don't we? So often we have great expectations. So often we build our expectations so high that they're unrealistic, that they're unattainable, or they're not in touch with reality. And I just want you to think about how disappointed you are with that, but how in those moments your reality begins to shift. You begin to see things with a clearer perspective, with a perspective that is not so veiled by the illusion of built up and misguided expectations. If you can think of a time in life like that, then you can understand some of what the disciples are encountering this morning as we come into into Mark chapter 8. This message is really called Great Expectations. The disciples here have these great expectations for Jesus that we're going to see, but they're off base. They're misguided. They're not in line with the reality of what Christ himself came for. And so up until this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus doing some incredible things, haven't we? We've seen Jesus exercising his power, his authority over the human realm, over the realm of humanity. We've seen Jesus healing sickness, healing disease. We've seen people even coming to him, just touching the hem of his garment and being healed. Miraculous work. We've seen Jesus exercise his authority over the spiritual realm, over the the demonic realm, casting out demons, doing what only the Son of God could do. And we've seen Jesus exercise his power and authority over the natural realm as well by calming the storm, walking on the water. 
by multiplying loaves and fishes to feed multitudes. Incredible things. And really, as we've looked at Mark's gospel so far, all of these things are really leading up to one crucial moment that we're going to find here in Mark chapter 8 today. And so why don't we just jump right into it. Mark chapter 8, and we're just going to go a couple of verses at a time. Uh, This morning, I really want to leave you with three questions for your own heart. Three questions for your own heart. And so let's start right here. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Let's just pause there for a second. And just the disciples here in in this section of Mark's gospel, they're walking on the road or walking along the path to this place, the villages around a place called Caesarea Philippi. And don't you notice that when you read the gospel, some of the most amazing conversations, some of the most uh, life-changing moments for the disciples happen as they are walking with Jesus. Isn't that how it happens in our lives too? You know, so often the greatest change that happens in our lives is while we're walking with Jesus, so to speak. And so they're walking along. They're on their way to this place, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Now, Caesarea Philippi is approximately uh, 40 kilometers uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. You'll see it right up there on the screen on the right-hand top corner, about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are journeying to this place. Um, and this place, this city, or these several villages in the Old Testament was a place of idol worship. It was a place uh, where Baal was, was worshipped. And then a little bit later on, the, the Greek gods, the Greek false gods were, were worshipped there. Now in Caesarea Philippi, it's got its name because Caesar is exalted in that city. Uh, emperor worship is prevalent there. It's the, the base, one of the bases where, where not only Roman rule, but Roman emperor worship takes place. And the disciples are walking along with Jesus. And as Jesus does while they're walking along, you know, Jesus, not happy to walk in silence with them, he drops a question right into their midst. An amazing question, a question that is really to get them thinking, to get them um, saying something to really, Jesus, what he's doing here is he's beginning to open up their heart. He, he asks them this question. He asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Disciples, who do people, who do the crowd say that I am? What are, they, what are they saying about me? Now, you know, think about this. Why is Jesus asking this question? Is Jesus asking this question because he didn't have this knowledge? Is, is Jesus looking to be enlightened by his disciples as to what people are saying? I don't think so. Okay, why would Jesus ask this particular question? Well, I believe that he's asking it because he's, he's getting to their hearts. Listen, this This whole passage is going somewhere. It's going to the heart of the disciples. It's going to a place of showing what they believe, yet showing their inconsistencies and how much they have to grow and be changed yet. And so he asks this question, who do people say that I am? Notice verse 28. And they told him, they've got lots of answers ready. John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. Now, people maybe said that, it was, that he was John the Baptist returned from the dead because Jesus preached a similar message to John the Baptist, didn't he? What was John's message? Uh, you read the Gospels, John has one sermon, right? He has one sermon. What is it? 
Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? He throws in a brood of vipers in there and a few other things once in a while, but that's his message. It's repent. And Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus, he preaches the same message. He builds it out, but he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is coming. It's here. It's arriving. It's here in me. And so some people were saying, well, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. Um, some people were saying that. Others were saying, no, this is one of the prophets. It's one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Or maybe the, you know, the spirit of one of these prophets anointing this person, kind of like the Elijah, Elisha thing. And some people said, oh, this is Elijah. This is Elijah, or this is the prophet that's like Elijah that was, you know, prophesied and spoken about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, uh, where it said that Elijah would return and would precede the Lord's coming. And so the people are saying all of these different things about who Jesus is. Isn't it interesting to note, though, today, what do people say when you ask them about who Jesus is? What do they say? Well, he's, you know, he's a, a good teacher, uh, Jesus is, um, he's a wise man. You know, maybe some people even elevate Jesus to guru status. Oh, he's, you know, he's an ancient guru that just, he had, you know, did this great vision of, of life. People will say that. Uh, they'll say that he was a religious zealot. They say he's a historical figure that's kind of, you know, clouded and shrouded in mystery that we really don't see all of who he is. People will say that, but, you know, most often today when we hear, hear the word name, uh, the name of Jesus Christ outside a church, we often hear it in the form of a swear word, don't we? Right? And people will say, you know, they'll take his name in vain. You know, why don't we, you know, take Bob Smith's name in vain? Why would we take Jesus' name in vain? Because it's so significant, isn't it? It's so significant. Now, notice this. Hang on to that thought. Why is this name so significant? What do the people say? What are those that you encounter in your workplace? What are those that you encounter in your neighborhood say about who Jesus Christ is? Listen, great idea. Ask them sometime. You know, who do you think Jesus is? That's a great opportunity for you. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's doing this with his disciples. Who do the people say that I am? He's priming them. He's getting them ready for a bigger question. You know, this isn't the end of the conversation. There's a bigger question coming. Ultimately, I don't think that the Lord is all that concerned here in this passage about what the world says about him, but he's concerned about what his disciples say about him, what the people in here, what we say about him. I want you to notice this. Let's look down at verse 29. He comes to his second question here, okay? This is going to be the first question that we're really going to focus on in this message, verse 29, right here. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? So he takes it from, you know, out there, what do people say, what are they thinking, what are they saying to directly personal, right to our hearts, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, you got to love Peter, it's always Peter who speaks up, isn't it? You know, Peter's always the guy that has the answer right away. I remember I had a friend in Bible college and he said, when he, he said, most people, most people are actually born with, you know, a bouncer that stands in front of their mouth and is like, no, no, that's not coming out. You're not saying that, no. He said, but some people, you know, they're actually born with a cheerleader in front of their mouth that's like, go, 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 go. That's Peter. That's Peter right away. You know, everybody's thinking it. 
Peter's saying it, right? Now, we got to love Peter. We can't fault Peter for that. Everybody's thinking it, you know, should I say this out loud? Peter's saying it. Here it is. Peter answers right away. Flat out, no time delay on this one. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then right after this, verse 30, and he, meaning Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one. Now listen, here we're kind of getting the shortened version of this in Mark's gospel, but we can take away this one question. We're going to look at the, more, the, the larger version from Matthew's gospel in a moment, but we get this one question right out of this text that we need to know the answer to. The most important question that we will hear today by far, the most important question that we will hear in our lifetimes, here it is right here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Plain and simple. That's question number one in our message this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what does your family say about him? Not what does your church community say about him? Not what does your friend say about him? But who do you, in your own heart, say that Jesus Christ is? What do you have to say about him? Now, I want you to look here at Peter's response. Peter responds so clearly. You are the Christ, he says. Listen, Peter's saying right here, everybody has an opinion of who you are, but, but we know the truth. You are the Christ. You are the one who has been sent. Listen, this question that Jesus asks right here is the most important question that we will hear in this lifetime. Amen. It's the most important question, hands down. It's the most important question for our world today, but the issue today is that most of the world doesn't even understand the question or has never heard the question. And so they can't find the answer, but it's the ultimate question. It is the question that is the question above all questions. It is the question that the door for your eternity and my eternity swings on. It is the hinge of the door to eternity for us. Who is Jesus Christ? What is he about? What is his purpose? Is he just a historical figure, a good moral teacher, you know, a wise guru? Or is he so much more than that? And that's what Jesus is driving at here today. He starts with the disciples. He starts out there asking them, what are people saying about me? But what do you say about me? And so think about it in your own heart today, right now. Who do you say that Jesus is? Push away what you've learned in Sunday school. Well, Jesus is, he's Jesus, right, okay? But, but who do you say that he is? We're gonna press this question deeper and deeper this morning as we go through this message. And we're gonna follow this question even as it relates to our daily actions because that's where Jesus is going with this. He's pressing the question on us. But who do you say that I am? Who am I even in those moments of life when things are difficult? Now, I want, I want to just show you the, the larger version of this that's contained in Matthew. I think we're going to bring it up on the screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 accounts the same thing. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Jesus, same situation, same, same passage, but over in Matthew. And Peter is recorded here as not just saying that you are the Christ, but Peter's recorded here as saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter adds to it, and then Jesus um, blesses him for this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, your mommy and daddy didn't teach this to you, but my father who is in heaven, Jesus says. And so Peter unpacks this a little bit more. He doesn't just simply say, okay, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah that we are waiting for. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
That's significant, isn't it? It'd be one thing for a Jewish person to say you are the Christ, but it's another thing for them to say you are the son of the living God. What is Peter really doing right there? Peter is directly saying that Jesus is not just another prophet, that Jesus is the man of God that has come from God, that is connected to God, that is God in the flesh. He is very God of very God. That's what he is saying right there. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he is so much more than just the Redeemer, the Rescuer that's going to come. He is God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Meaning, God has taught you this. You haven't learned this because, you know, your mom and dad taught you good things and you retained them. You learned this because God has revealed this to you. He's opened you to this truth and helped you to see it. And so, listen, as we look at Peter's confession right here, you know, why is this confession such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal here in this passage and in Matthew's passage? You know, why would a Jesus then turn around and bless Peter as a result of this? Why is it such a big deal? Well, at this point in Mark's gospel, this confession, everything leading up to it has been tested already, hasn't it? If you read John's gospel, it's been tested up till this point. If you read Matthew's gospel, this confession has been tested. It's been challenged. Okay, the people are following Jesus, and Jesus begins to preach some hard messages. He, okay, he preaches in John that unless you eat my flesh, he says, okay, that he's the bread of life, and unless you eat my flesh, not his physical body, okay, but spiritually speaking, you cannot enter the kingdom. And the people, what do they do? What do they do? They walk away. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can follow it? They go away. And Jesus asks his disciples, are you going to go away too? And they say, well, who do we have to go to? They, they see what's going on. This, this confession of Peter here to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, has already been tested. But right now, coming up in this passage that we're in, in Mark's gospel, it is going to be tested even more so. Jesus is going to take this confession of the disciples and he's going to put it in the furnace and he's going to test it. And you know what he's going to do when he does that? He's not going to break their faith. He's going to build their faith. He's going to grow their faith. He's going to help them to truly know not only who he is, but what his plans are for his life and for their life. And so let's follow along right here. And Jesus is quick to respond to Peter here. He's quick to respond. He says, don't tell anyone about this, okay? He, he instructs them not to go out and tell everybody about who he is, not to reveal his identity as Christ to everybody yet. And that might strike you at this moment as kind of weird in the text, but it's not weird. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, listen, don't go share this with everybody. Why not? Because you don't get it fully yet. You don't understand how this is actually going to go down. And he begins to unpack what it actually means for him to be the Messiah, for him to be the Christ, the Redeemer. Take a look at verse 31. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, this would have just blown the disciples' minds. This would have been so confusing to them. They wouldn't have understood this. They wouldn't have been able to grapple with this. This did not fit their conception of who the Messiah was supposed to be. What do we know about what the disciples were expecting of a Messiah? Well, they were expecting a Messiah 
that would come, that would push out Roman rule out of Israel, a Messiah that would lead to a time of peace and justice, a Messiah who would sit on the throne, would reign on the throne, and would establish his kingdom. And maybe the disciples are even buying into a notion that they might even have seats to sit on beside him as he reigned on that throne. But it didn't cross their mind for some reason that the Messiah would come and that he would be a suffering Messiah that would be rejected, that would be opposed, that would be abandoned by the chief priests and the leaders, and that ultimately he would be a savior, a Christ, a Messiah who would die on a cross and give his life for us. For some reason, the disciples had missed out or misunderstood some of those portions of Scripture that spoke of Christ's suffering. For some reason, Isaiah chapter 53 hadn't really fit into their theological grid. You ever come across a difficult verse in the Bible? And you're just like, I don't know how that fits. What do you do with it? You kind of just put it on the shelf, don't you? Kind of like, well, I'll figure that one out later on. Anyone else do that? I know I do that, okay. It's like, well, I'll come back to that later. Well, maybe that's what the disciples had done with Isaiah 53 that talks so clearly about Jesus' suffering. But for some reason, they didn't get this. They had great expectations of the Messiah, of the Christ, but they had misled expectations. Expectations that didn't fit with his identity, with his mission, and with his purpose. Listen, I want to ask you the second question this morning. The first question is, who do you say that Jesus is? The second question is right here. Who do you say that Jesus is when his plans don't line up with your expectations? Who do you say that Jesus is when his plans, what he is going to do in your life and even in this world around you, in your family, and maybe even in your marriage, don't line up with your expectations? What do you say about him then? In a few minutes, we're going to get to how do we respond in those situations, but this is really what Jesus is going after, okay? Jesus just said to his disciples, okay, who do the people say that I am? They throw a bunch of stuff out there, but who do you say that I am? And then he talks about his suffering. Now, what do you say? Well, what do they say? Okay, take a look at this. Verse 31, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must come and must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And what do they begin to think? No, no, it's not going to happen like that. It's not going to go down that way. Somehow, Jesus, maybe you're testing us right now. Maybe, you know, you're giving us the wrong answer to say, oh, you're, you're right. It's not going to happen like that. But what's he really doing? He's, he's testing their faith here. He's revealing his full plan, his full purpose to them. You know, the disciples were looking for a national leader, but they weren't looking so much for a personal redeemer. The disciples saw all of the problems out there in the world, yet they neglected the greatest problem that's right in here, their own sinfulness. And they were ready for a national leader. They were ready for a Christ who would come and would sit on the throne and they would sit with him. But were they really ready for a savior who wanted to radically transform them from the inside out? A savior who was going to give his life on a cross, pour out his blood and be broken in their place so that they could be saved for all of eternity. And right here, Jesus brings this in. This is the first time uh, in Mark's gospel where Jesus shares in such detail about his death and his resurrection. And the disciples here get a glimpse into the purpose that Jesus has truly come for. 
They'd lost sight of this. They'd maybe not fully understood this or known this. And so right here, we get a picture of the identity of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus in this passage and in the rest of this book. And we're going to see Jesus over and over again build this out through the rest of Mark's gospel. But listen, if you want a great verse that summarizes Jesus' purpose in this world, it's a verse that you've already heard quoted in this series so far. It's, it's Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Luke 19, verse 10, such a great verse for all of us to know and to have ready. Luke 19, 10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right now in this passage, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is opening up his disciples' eyes. He's opening up his disciples' hearts to say, it's not going to be the way that you expected. It's going to be so much harder, but it is going to be so much better. What Jesus is doing is he is planting the seed for the great commission. He's planting the seed for the gospel, that the gospel will go out into all of the world, that it won't just be a small group that is saved, but the gospel will go out and there will be people saved from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and this kingdom that Jesus is there to proclaim and inaugurate, this kingdom will be preached in all of the world and many, many, many will come to be saved for all of eternity, Jesus is opening up his disciples' hearts to this. They don't fully see it yet, but he's doing it. So often it's so easy for us, isn't it, to focus on the external need, the needs that are out there, the needs of someone else, the needs of our world today. And it's so easy for us to gloss over our internal need our internal need for grace, our internal need to be met again by the Savior in a fresh way, to realize His grace, to even be broken by it, to be humbled by it, and to taste it again in a way that maybe we haven't in a long time. And so Jesus presses the question. He presses the question, who am I? And then He comes back to the question and says, all right, but now, how are you going to respond when it isn't the way that you expected? What are you going to say about me when it isn't the way that you expected? I want you to take a look down to verse 32. Let's take a look to verse 32. Verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's a lot here. Let's just walk through these verses and kind of unpack it quickly. Jesus speaking very plainly at this point, not speaking in parables, but just addressing them very plainly. As he does this, as he talks about his death, as he talks about his suffering, as he talks about his resurrection, Peter's like, whoa, hold on. That's not the way that it's going to happen. And notice what Peter does here. He pulls Jesus aside. Okay, try to get this picture right here in your mind. It's, It's pretty... Incredible picture. For us who stand outside of the situation, it's incredible. It's laughable in some ways. For Peter in the moment, I think a lot of us would have been right there with him. So Jesus standing here, Peter standing here, the disciples standing maybe over there some way. Peter pulls Jesus aside. And and what does Peter do? He rebukes him. Now think about that. Jesus is Christ and Lord right? Yet Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. 
Now, I'm not sure what Peter said exactly here. It's not recorded for us exactly, but it's pretty difficult to rebuke somebody without saying no, isn't it? And so maybe Peter said, no, Lord, or Lord, no. Just think about that for a second. Think about those two words. And think about the inconsistency of that for a moment. Lord, no. No, Lord. Just consider that. Okay, if he's Lord, if he's master, if he's ruler, if he's the one that I bow down to, that I humble myself before, can no enter into my vocabulary? No. Because in the moment that I say no, he is no no longer my Lord. I'm not yielding to his lordship. So just get this picture, okay? Peter turns around and rebukes Jesus saying maybe something like, no, Lord, it's, it's not going to be that way. I know you're not going to die. I, I'm not sure what he says, but he rebukes him. And notice what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he sees his disciples and he responds very clearly here to Peter's response. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, right here is the third question that we need to ask this morning, the third final question that we need to ask today. Okay, how do we respond? How do we respond when Jesus doesn't comply with our desires? Okay, the first question, who do you say that Jesus is? Second question, okay, who do you say that Jesus is when things don't go according to your plan, when his plans don't match your plan? Third question, how do you respond when Jesus doesn't comply with your desires? We're going right after the response here. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus asks the question to Peter. He asks the question to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And then Jesus takes these disciples and he puts them in the furnace, so to speak, for a moment. He tests their answer. Well, you're the Christ. Well, let's see what you say whenever I tell you it's not going to be the way that you expect. And so he tests this question. Why would Jesus want to test Peter's response? Why would he want to test the disciples? Because he wants to give them an opportunity to turn and to walk in the direction that he wants them to walk in. He wants to give them an opportunity to see their own inconsistency. Listen, this is super relevant for us this morning. This is super practical for each of us. How do we respond when Jesus doesn't comply with our desires? How do I respond in my life when I have an expectation of the Christian life or an expectation of somebody else and they don't measure up to what I think that they should? How do I respond? Do I respond in faith or do I respond in saying, no, Lord, it was never meant to be this way. You must have messed up here. You must have it wrong in some way. How do we respond in those moments? Listen, I believe that the Lord is really testing the disciples here. He's testing them because he wants to change the way that they respond. I think that's our takeaway here, is that the Lord wants to grow us in the way that we respond in those moments when things don't add up to our expectations. The hope that we had, maybe the hope of something in this life or the hope of, you know, whatever it might be, something so much more than vacations, the hope that we had in a way, in a sense, the false hope that maybe we expected that when we turned to Jesus, life was going to get easier instead of harder. And Jesus wants to test that in us. Why would he want to test that? Because he wants to produce something that is so much greater. You think about how metal is refined. Metal is refined. It's taken as ore and it's put into a fire. 
And what does that fire do? It burns and burns and burns and it burns away all of the impurities, okay, until the metal actually runs out pure and true. And that's what the Lord does with us in difficult situations, in difficult moments. He puts us in the fire, so to speak, not to destroy us, but to refine us. That's what he's doing right here in this text with the disciples. He is refining them. He is helping them not only to be able to say with their mouth and their mind that you are the Christ, but he's helping them to be able to say in their heart with their actions, you are truly the Christ and I will follow you no matter where you go, whatever it costs. That's where this is leading. And Jesus is a master, obviously, at drawing out the heart because he knows the heart so much better than anyone else could know the heart. Now, notice the sharp contrast here. Peter, who just a minute ago, back in Mark 16, who was praised for getting the right answer. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Okay, right here, Jesus is not saying, blessed are you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, get behind me, Satan, meaning, Peter, you're delivering the message of Satan now. You are speaking like, like a demon, is what he's saying. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Peter is possessed by Satan here. I don't think that's being inferred in this text. I don't think that uh, Peter is, or that Jesus is saying that Peter is Satan here. But he's saying that he is He's thinking in a way, he's reasoning in a way, he is speaking in a way that is more in line with Satan's desire than with God's desire. That's what he's saying. And so what is God's desire in this? Well, God's desire ultimately was for Jesus to come and to seek and save the lost and to redeem the lost, to go all the way to the cross, to lay his life down in our, pl- in, in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored, and then for him to rise from the dead and triumph over death, over sin, and over hell, and over the devil. That's God's plan. And and Peter is trying to dissuade Jesus away from the cross, away from the suffering, saying, no, 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 why don't don't you just go and and be king and, and reign right now? Do the miracles and they'll believe in you. He's trying to talk him away from the road of suffering that the Father has laid out for him. Listen, I really don't think that Jesus is being harsh here. This morning, I think that Jesus in this passage is really calling it what it is. Uh, His sacrificial work on the cross was part of God's plan. If you're not sure about that, you could see Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. And it tells us so clearly that this is part of God's plan. And any person or anyone who would oppose this plan for any reason is ultimately advocating the work of the devil. And that's what Peter is doing here. Unknowingly, I believe. He is... He's advocating something that is actually demonic. You're like, wow, that's a little steep. That's a little harsh. Maybe Jesus is, you know, a little bit worked up here. Maybe he's being a little bit harsh here in this place. Um, maybe, you know, Jesus just a bad day with the Pharisees, right? And he's, he, Peter's just his guy that he blew up on. Maybe a long walk from Bethsaida, you know, heading up to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Uh, maybe he got a rock in his shoe and it was, you know, rubbing him the wrong way and he's just really upset here and he blows up on Peter. No, that's not what happened. What happened is Jesus called it for what it is. Jesus asked the questions. Jesus drew out the heart. Jesus found the inconsistency and he called the inconsistency what it was. Why? Why would Jesus say something so harsh to one of his disciples? Because he loves him. Because he loves them. 
because he doesn't want them to walk in error. He doesn't want them to walk in inconsistency. He doesn't want them to walk with built-up expectations of the way that it's not going to be and then have all of their hopes and dreams and so-called faith shattered when it doesn't go the way that they expected. He wants them to walk in the light. He wants them to walk in the truth. He wants them to follow him wherever he will go, and that even includes a cross. So Jesus is beginning here to call his disciples to something so much greater than anything that they are able to do in and of themselves. And before we, you know, kind of give Peter too much flack here, I just want you to think for a second, aren't we just like this sometimes? Aren't we just like this? We're asked, okay, who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. I love him with all of my heart. And then all of a sudden, the inconsistency comes out in our response, doesn't it? I know I'm like this. I know that's me. I, I just see myself so much in this passage. Uh, Lord, I love you. And then the next minute, I'm failing. The next minute, I'm turning away. The next minute, I'm opposing. And the Lord's showing us this here today. Aren't we like this, though? Just, you know, think about this, okay? You're in here this morning. You're gathered in here for worship this morning. And, you know, the, the band's up on stage, they're singing, it's one of your favorite worship songs, you've got your hands up like this, and then on the way out, you walk out to the parking lot and you see that somebody backed into your car and dented the door all in, and you just let fly like a string of profanities that would make a sailor blush, okay? And you remember the sermon and you're like, that's me, that's what I'm like. Well, what does that say? Does that say that you're not a believer when you go out there? That says there's inconsistencies in who we are, that we are still in the flesh. Though we are in Christ, we still struggle and we will struggle until he's completed his good, perfect work in him. So what do we do when we struggle, when we fail in that way? What do we do? Do we hide? Do we turn away? Do we go dark from God or do we call out to God for more help, for more grace to meet us? Well, you know what scripture tells us? It tells us that when we struggle, it tells us at any moment what we are to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are to set our eyes on Jesus Christ. We are to focus on him. We are to fix our gaze on him. And as we look to him, as we look to Christ, we will be changed. We will be transformed. And so this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's saying, hey boys, it's not going to be the way that you thought it is. It's not going to be all great and wonderful and thrones and people singing our praise. In fact, it's going to look a lot different. In fact, they're going to kill me and I'm going to let them so that I can solve the ultimate problem that this world has, the sin problem, the problem of the human heart. And all of a sudden, there's this shift that begins to happen in the disciples as they begin to start to think little by little about what this will mean for them to follow Jesus when it is hard, when it is difficult. And just think about this inconsistency for a second. Right here in this moment, Peter is not responding. He's not responding from the wisdom that the Lord gives. He's not responding in the strength of the Spirit. He's responding in the flesh, isn't he? Jesus just got right to the heart. Jesus got to the heart and pulled out, saw that flesh response and drew it out. Notice what the text says right here. Notice what it says. Right here in this passage, as they're, as they're there, as they're walking along the road, he's asked the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, down in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is saying right here, Peter, you're responding in an earthly way. You're responding with human wisdom, so-called wisdom. You're responding according to the flesh. 
You're not responding. You're not responding to me according to the way that I would lead you, but you're responding like a mere mortal, like what is normal to you ever since you grew up. How often do we respond that way? Problem comes, flesh responds. We, we give into that so quickly and so easily. Where does that come from? And Jesus rebukes him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Not harsh, I don't think, if you actually look at, you know, what James says about fleshly reasoning. James chapter 3, verse 15, this is what James says. James is, if you think Jesus is harsh there, James is a lot more harsh right here, okay? James says this. James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and demonic, he says. This is right in line with what's happening here in this passage. Peter, reasoning according to the flesh, reasoning according to what he thinks is best, about what he thinks is going to be best for his life. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly. What does earthly mean? It means regular. It means normal, sinful, human reasoning. It means what comes normal to our minds. It's unspiritual and it's demonic. Wow, James, that's intense. Really? Seriously? It's demonic? Yeah, it's demonic. Why? Because it's more in line with the devil's kingdom than it is with God's kingdom. Now, how often do we give in to reasoning in that way, thinking in that way? Well, we give in to reasoning in that way and thinking in that way whenever we set our mind on anything but Jesus Christ. The moment that we take our mind off of Jesus Christ, his purpose, his identity, his kingdom, his plans, his desire for our lives, we begin to reason in a human, earthly, unspiritual, and as James would say, demonic way. So what does scripture have to say for us? Well, here's a couple passages that are a great help to us. You could start with 2 Corinthians if you wanted. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4 have a lot to say about this. Um, as we're told to look not to the things that are seen, but to look to the things that are unseen. But here's a great verse. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2. Here's the solution. When we find ourselves in the place where it is hard to respond in faith, where it is hard for us not only to say with our mouths, but to say with our actions, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. I will follow you wherever you go. When we find ourselves there, what are we to do? Well, here it is right here. Colossians chapter three, verse two. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. Set your mind on the things above. This is what Jesus is calling Peter to and the disciples to. He's calling them to, hey guys, listen, don't set your mind on the thrones that you're gonna have on this earth. Set your mind on the things that are in heaven, the throne that you will have with me in glory. Set your mind on the things above. Romans chapter eight, verses six and seven says a similar thing. It says this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Listen, brothers and sisters, today the Lord is not just calling us to name him in name, not just to get the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? Yes, that is the most important question for your eternity. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he Lord of your life? Is he your personal savior? That is the question that the door of eternity swings on for you. 
but he's calling you so much to so much more than that. He's calling you to respond to him in faith when life is incredibly difficult. He's calling you to respond to him with humility, with submission, when life doesn't make sense. He's calling you to respond to him with a willingness to follow even when the expectations that you have don't line up with what he's actually calling you to do. That's what he's calling us to today. That's what he's calling the disciples to today. He is calling us to discipleship that is so far out of the norm. He's calling us really to a radical discipleship of following him wherever he will go at whatever cost it takes to ourselves, knowing that it's glory that it's leading to, that our reward is not in this earth, but that our reward is in heaven for all of eternity. Listen, just think about the false expectations that we can have in life. Think about the false expectations that so many Christians, so-called Christians have today. Think about the false expectations of even the, quote, prosperity gospel movement and how they so often say that all of those good things that are rightfully ours in heaven because of Jesus Christ, we can have them now. We should have them now. We should have them in this life. And think about the tons and tons and tons, thousands of people that are being misled, misrepresented, and their faith falls to pieces. Why? Because the door into eternity swings on the hinge of one question. Who do you say Jesus is? And who will you say Jesus is even when he takes away everything that you've held dear in this life? How will you respond in those moments? Will you still call him Lord? Will you still bow your knee before him? Will you still say, even though it slay me, I will follow you wherever you would lead? Man, I know that's the work that God has to do in my heart. I bet you that's the work he has to do in your heart as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for passages like this, Lord, that show us a glimpse of Jesus that we wouldn't see if it was just up to our expectations. God, we thank you that you reveal to us a Savior who actually came to die in our place, to pour himself out on the cross for us so that we could receive grace and mercy. Lord, we recognize we don't deserve those things. God, we deserve your wrath and your judgment. We deserve your justice. But we're so thankful that Jesus Christ didn't come into this world to sit on a throne. He came into this world to hang on a cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to respond in humility to Christ? Humility to respond to say, you are Lord, even though I don't get it, even though it doesn't measure up to my expectations, I will follow you. I will trust you. I will walk with you. Lord, would you give me strength? God, would you do that in each of us here today? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.